but the apostle would have them so called to mind as to consider with all what support they had under their sufferings, what satisfaction in them, what deliverance from them, that they may not despond upon the approach of the like trials and evils on the same account. If we remember our sufferings only as unto what is evil and afflictive in them, what we lose, what we endure and undergo, such a remembrance will weaken and dispirit us as unto our future trials. Hereon many cast about to deliver themselves for the future by undue means and sinful compliances in a desertion of their profession, the thing the apostle was jealous of concerning these Hebrews. But if withal we call to mind what was the cause for which we suffered, the honor that is in such sufferings, outbalancing all the contempt and reproaches of the world, the presence of God enjoyed in them and the reward proposed unto us, the calling these things to mind will greatly strengthen us against future trials, provided we retain the same love unto and valuation of the things for which we suffered, as we had in those former days. Unquote. John Calvin said, The remembrance then of past warfare, if it had been carried on faithfully and diligently under the banner of Christ, is at length useful to us, not as a pretext for sloth, as though we had already served our time, but to render us more active in finishing the remaining part of our course. For Christ has not enlisted us on this condition that we should after a few years ask for a discharge, like soldiers who have served their time, but that we should pursue our warfare even unto the end. Unquote. It therefore becomes a solemn and searching question for each of us to face. To what extent am I now being antagonized by the world? Something must be seriously wrong with me if I have the good will of everybody. God's word emphatically declares, All that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. 2 Timothy 3.12 Partly, whilst ye were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly, whilst ye became companions of them that were so used. Verse 33. In this verse, the Apostle mentions one or two features of what their great fight of affliction had consisted. Some of them were made a public spectacle to their neighbors, by the malicious accusations brought against them, and by the derision and punishment laid upon them, while others were the partners of those who were also cruelly treated. The principal reference here is to the loss which they had sustained in their characters and reputations, and unto many people, especially those of a sensitive temperament, this is a sore trial. 
Almost anything is easier to bear than obloquy and disgrace. But sufficient for the disciple to be as his master, they slandered him and said, He had a demon. Reproach and slander are exceedingly trying, and if we are not upon our guard, if we fail to gird up the loins of our minds, 1 Peter 1.13, we are likely to be so cast down by them as to be incapacitated for duty. Despondency and despair are never excusable in the Christian and must be steadily resisted. We need to make up our minds that if by grace we are determined to follow the example which Christ has left us, we shall have many enemies, especially in the religious world, who will scruple at no misrepresentations of our motives and actions. We must learn to undervalue our reputations and be content to be regarded as the offscoring of all things. We must seek grace to emulate him who set his face like a flint, Isaiah 57, who endured the cross, despising the shame, Hebrews 12.2. Unless we cultivate his spirit, we shall be at a great disadvantage when sufferings come upon us. Not only had the Hebrew Christians suffered personally, but they had fellowship also in the sufferings of others. This is a Christian duty, and we may add a privilege. As members of the same family, as fellow pilgrims toward the better country, as called to serve together under the same banner, it is only meet that we should bear one another's burdens and weep with them that weep. Of Moses, it is recorded that he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Hebrews 11:24 and 25. To be a companion of those who suffer for Christ is an evidence of our love for his brethren, of courage in suffering, and of readiness to succor those who are persecuted because of the gospel. We do well to frequently ponder Matthew 25, 42 to 45. For ye had compassion of me in my bonds. Verse 34. The apostle here makes grateful acknowledgement of the sympathy which the Hebrews had shown him in an hour of need. The historical reference may be to the time when he lay bound in chains at Jerusalem, Acts 21.33, when their love for him was shown by their prayers and perhaps letters and gifts. It is the bounden duty for Christians to express in a practical way their compassion for any of Christ's suffering servants doing everything in their power to succor, support, and relieve them. Equally so is it the duty of God's ministers to thankfully own the kindness shown them. Christ himself will yet publicly bear witness unto the services of love which have been shown unto his brethren. Matthew twenty-five thirty-four to 40 
for ye had compassion of me in my bonds. These words supply one of the many proofs that the Apostle Paul was the author of this epistle. For of the other persons whom some have fancied wrote it, such as Luke, Barnabas, Clement, and so forth, there is no hint anywhere in Scripture, nor we believe in ecclesiastical history of any of them suffering bonds in Judea. But the lying of Paul in bonds and imprisonment was renowned above all others. Hence he styled himself in particular Paul, prisoner of Jesus Christ, Philemon 1, and gloried in this peculiar honor as an ambassador in bonds, Ephesians 6.24. And as such, desired the saints at Colossae to remember him at the throne of grace, chapter 4, verse 3. Thus his bonds being above all others so familiar, such a subject of the church's prayers, this reference here in Hebrews 10.34 at once identifies the writer, and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, verse 34. This supplies further information upon the deportment of the Hebrews under their trials. They had not only patiently endured the great fight of affliction, but were happy in being counted worthy to suffer for Christ. A blessed triumph was that of the mighty grace of God over the weakness of the flesh. God is able to strengthen in the inner man with all might according to his glorious power unto all patience and long-suffering with joyfulness. Colossians 1.11 Ordinarily, few things are more calculated to distress the minds of men than their being cruelly plundered of those things for which they have labored hard and which they and their families still need. Wailing and lamentations commonly accompany them. Blessed is it when the heart is brought to hold lightly all earthly comforts and conveniences, for it is easier then to part with them should we be called upon to do so. Knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and enduring substance. Verse 34. This clause supplies the key to the previous one, showing the ground of their joy. Faith looked away from things seen to those unseen, reckoning that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Romans 8.18 For our light affliction, which it but for a moment worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. 2 Corinthians 4.17 Where the heart's affections are truly set upon things above, Colossians 3.2, few tears will be shed over the loss of any earthly baubles. True, it is natural to mourn when rudely deprived of material possessions but it is supernatural to rise above such grieving. The true riches of the Christian 
are not accessible to human or satanic plunderers. Men may strip us of all our worldly possessions, but they cannot take from us the love of God, the salvation of Christ, the comforts of the Holy Spirit, the hope of eternal glory. Said one who was waylaid by a bandit who demanded his money or his life, Money I have none on me. My life is hid with Christ in God. The poor worldling may give way to despair when business is bad, bonds deteriorate, and banks smash. But no child of God ought ever to do so. He has been begotten unto an inheritance which is incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven. 1 Peter 1.4 Yet, It is only as faith is in exercise, as the heart is really occupied with our heavenly portion, that we enjoy them and regard all else as but vanity and vexation of spirit. Matthew Henry said, What was it that enabled them thus to bear up under their sufferings? They knew in themselves that they had in heaven a better and a more enduring substance. Observe first, the happiness of the saints in heaven is substance, something of real weight and worth. All things here are but shadows. Secondly, it is a better substance than anything they can have or lose here. Thirdly, it is an enduring substance. It will outlive time and run parallel with eternity. They can never spend it. Their enemies can never take it from them as they did their earthly goods. Fourthly, this will make a rich amends for all they can lose and suffer here. In heaven, they shall have a better life, a better estate, better liberty, better society, better hearts, better work, everything better. Unquote. Knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and an enduring substance, let us now wait carefully the first three words of this clause. These Hebrew saints had a firm conviction of heart concerning their heavenly portion. It does not say knowing from God's promises, but knowing in yourselves. This presents a side of the truth, an aspect of Christian assurance, which is rarely dwelt upon in these days. Instead, it is widely ridiculed and denied, many insisting that the only basis of assurance is the bare letter of Scripture. It is quite true that the foundation of our confidence is the written word, but that is not the only ground any more than A marriage certificate is the sole proof which a woman has that the man who loves, cherishes, and lives with her is her husband. No, one has only to read impartially through the first epistle of John in order to discover that he is who, walking with God and enjoying the light of his countenance, has many evidences 
that he is a new creature in Christ Jesus. Knowing in yourselves the one who is following on to know the Lord, Hosea 6.3, not only has the testimony of God's word without, but he has also the witness of the Spirit within him that he is a child and heir of God, Romans 8.16 and 17. In his regeneration and begun experimental sanctification, he has received the first fruits of the Spirit, Romans 8.23. In consequence, he now has new desires, new conflicts, new joys, new sorrows. Faith purifies his heart, Acts 15.9. He has received the spirit of adoption, whereby he cries, Abba, Father. From what he finds in his own heart, he knows that he is heaven-born and heaven-bound. Let those who are strangers to a supernatural work of grace in their own hearts mock and scoff all they please. Let them sneer at introspection, call it mysticism or anything else they wish. But one who is scripturally assured of the Spirit's work within him refuses to be laughed out of his surest proof that he is a child of God. Granted that many have been and are deluded, acknowledging that the unregenerate heart is deceitful above all things, admitting that the devil has lulled thousands into hell by means of happy feelings within them. Yet none of these things alter or affect to the slightest degree the fact that it is both the duty and privilege of every genuine Christian to know in himself that he has passed from death unto life. Provided he be denying self, taking up his cross and following Christ in the path of obedience, he will have cause for rejoicing in the testimony of a good conscience. 2 Corinthians 1.12 But if he yields to the lusts of the flesh, fellowships, an ungodly world, and gets into a backslidden state, then the joy of his salvation will be lost. Nothing then is of greater practical importance than that the Christian should keep clean and unstained his inward evidences that he is journeying toward heaven. John Brown said, Such then are the things which the Apostle wishes the Hebrew Christians to call to remembrance. It is easy to see how the calling of these things to remembrance was calculated to serve his purpose, to guard them from apostasy and establish them in the faith and profession of the gospel. It is as if he had said, why shrink from suffering for Christianity now? Were you not exposed to suffering from the beginning? When you first became Christians, did you not willingly undergo sufferings on account of it? And is not Christianity as worthy of being suffered for as ever? Is not Jesus the same yesterday and today and forever? 
Did not the faith and hope of Christianity formerly support you under your sufferings and make you feel that they were but the light afflictions of the moment? And are they not as able to support you now as then? Has the substance in heaven become less real or less enduring? And have you not as good evidence now as you had then that to the persevering Christian such treasure is laid up? Are you willing to lose all the benefit of the sacrifices you have made and the sufferings you have sustained? And they will all go for nothing if you endure not unto the end. These are considerations all naturally suggested by the words of the Apostle and all well calculated to induce them to hold fast the profession of their faith without wavering. Unquote. Continued in the July studies. Study number three. The life of David. His early experiences. Human nature is very apt to turn eyes of envy upon those who occupy exalted positions. It is commonly supposed that they who are stationed in seats of eminence and honor enjoy many advantages and benefits which are denied those beneath them. But this is far more imaginary than real, and where true is offset by the added responsibilities incurred and the more numerous temptations which are there encountered. What was before us in our last article ought to correct the popular delusion. David on the plains of Bethlehem was far better off than David in the king's household. Tending the sheep was less exacting than waiting upon Saul. Amid the green pastures he was free from jealous courtiers, the artificial etiquette of the palace, and the javelin of a mad monarch. The practical lesson to be learned by us is to be contented with the lowly position which the providence of God has assigned us. And why should those who are joint heirs with Christ be concerned about the trifles and toys of this world? Resuming now at the point where we broke off, we next read, And Saul was afraid of David, because the Lord was with him and was departed from Saul. 1 Samuel 18.12 The word for afraid here is a milder one than that employed in verse 15, and might be rendered apprehensive. The king was becoming increasingly uneasy about the future. Consequent upon his disobedience, the prophet of God had plainly told Saul, Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. And then he added, The Lord hath rent the kingdom of Israel from thee this day, and hath given it to a neighbor of thine that is better than thou. Chapter 15, verses 23 and 28. While he was probably ignorant of David's anointing, chapter 16, verse 13, it is plain that Saul was now growing more fearful 
that the man who had vanquished Goliath was he whom Jehovah had selected to succeed him. First, it was evident to all that the Lord had given the young shepherd the victory over Goliath, for none had dared in his own courage to engage the mighty giant. Second, David's behaving himself so wisely in every position assigned him and his being accepted in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants, chapter 18, verse 5, indicated that he would be popular with the masses were he to ascend the throne. Third, the song of the women caused the jealous king to draw his own conclusion. They have ascribed unto David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands, and what can he have more but the kingdom? Verse 8. And now that his personal attack upon David's life had been frustrated, verse 11, Saul was apprehensive, for he saw that the Lord was with David while he knew that he had forsaken himself. And Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, verse 12. The proofs that the special favor of God rested upon David were too plain and numerous for Saul to deny. Jehovah was protecting and preserving, prospering and succeeding David, giving him victory over his enemies and acceptance in the sight of the people. Ah, my hero, when the smile of the Lord is resting upon any of his saints, even the wicked are obliged to take note of and acknowledge the same. The chief captain of Abimelech's host admitted to Abraham, God is with thee in all that thou doest. Genesis 21:22. What a testimony was that from a heathen! When Joseph was in the house of Potiphar, we are told, and his master saw that the Lord was with him. Genesis 39:3. Can those among whom our lot is cast perceive that the special blessing of heaven is resting upon us? If not, our hearts ought to be deeply exercised before God. And Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him and was departed from Saul. An additional cause of Saul's alarm was the knowledge that the Lord had departed from him, and therefore was he destitute of strength of mind and courage, wisdom and prudence, and had become mean and abject and exposed to the contempt of his subjects. The reference is to chapter 16, verse 14. A solemn warning is this for us. It was because of his rebellion against the Lord that Saul was now deserted of God. How often God withdraws his sensible and comforting presence from his people through their following a course of self-will. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me, and he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. John fourteen twenty one. Therefore, 
Saul removed him from him and made him his captain over a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. Verse 13. Solomon indeed is it to behold how Saul acted here. Instead of humbling himself before God, he sought to rid himself of the man whose presence condemned him, instead of judging himself unsparingly for the sin which had caused the Spirit of God to leave him, the wretched king was loath to look any more at the one upon whom Jehovah's favor manifestly rested. How differently did sinning David act at a later date. Behold him as he cries, For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned, and done this evil in thy sight. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Psalm 51, 3, 4, and 11. Ah, here is the great difference between the unregenerate and the regenerate. The one harden themselves in their sin, the other are broken before God on account of it. Therefore Saul removed him from him and made him his captain over a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. But let us admire again the hand of God overruling, yea, directing the reprobate monarch's actions to the carrying out of his own designs. Though it was hatred of his person that caused the king to remove David from the court and perhaps partly to please his subjects and partly because he hoped he might be slain in battle, that our hero was now made captain over a regiment. Yet this only served the more to ingratiate him with the people by affording him the opportunity of leading them to victory over their enemies. Abundant opportunity was thus afforded to all Israel to become acquainted with David and all his ways. Let us also take note of another line in the typical picture here. Though anointed king of Israel, chapter 16, verse 13, David was nevertheless called upon to endure the hatred of the ruling power. Thus it was with David's son and lord. The one who lay in Bethlehem's manger was none other than Christ, the anointed, the Lord, Luke 2.11, and born king of the Jews, Matthew 2.2. 2. Yet the king of Judea sought his life, Matthew 2.16, though fruitlessly, as in our type. So too, at a later date when his public ministry had begun, we read that the Pharisees went out and held a council against him, how they might destroy him. Matthew 12:14. Blessed is it to see how that instead of attempting to take things into his own hands, David was content to quietly wait the time which God had appointed for his coronation. In like manner, our blessed Lord willingly endured the sufferings before he entered into his glory. May divine grace grant unto us all needed patience. 
And David behaved himself wisely in all ways, and the Lord was with him. Verse 14. Observe that little word, all, and turn it into prayer and practice, whether on the farm, in the court, or on the battlefield, the man after God's own heart conducted himself prudently. Here too, he foreshadowed him of whom it was declared, He hath done all things well. Mark 7.37 Let this ever be our desire and aim. And the Lord was with him, protecting and prospering. That word in Second Chronicles 15.2 still holds good. The Lord is with you while ye be with him, and if ye seek him, he will be found of you. But if ye forsake him, he will forsake you. If we diligently seek to cultivate a daily walk with God, all will be well with us. Wherefore, when Saul saw that he behaved himself very wisely, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, because he went out and came in before them. Verses 15 and 16. When the God-forsaken king perceived that he had gained no advantage against David, but instead he succeeded in all his undertakings and was more and more in favor with the people, Saul was greatly alarmed lest the hour was drawing near when the kingdom should be rent from him and given to his rival. When the wicked discern that the awe and blessing of God is upon the righteous, they are afraid of them. Thus we read that Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just man and an holy. Mark 6.20 When it is known that God is in the assemblies of his saints, even the great ones of the earth are convicted and rendered uneasy. See Psalm 48, 2-6. And Saul said to David, Behold, my elder daughter Mirab, her will I give thee to wife. Only be thou valiant for me, and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul said, Let not mine hand be upon him, but let the hand of the Philistines be upon him. Verse 17. This was said not in friendship and goodwill to David, but as designed to lay a snare for him. Thoroughly obsessed with envy, the king was unable to rest. If it could be accomplished without incurring direct guilt, he was determined to encompass David's destruction. Formerly, he had made a personal attack upon his life, chapter 18, verse 11. But now he feared the people with whom David was so popular, verse 16. So Saul deemed it wiser to devise this vile plot. He would have David work out his own doom. Remarkable is it to note that this was the very way in which Saul's own career was ended. He was slain by the Philistines. See 1 Samuel 31, 1-5. Only be thou valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul said, 
Let not mine hand be upon him, but let the hand of the Philistines be upon him. Was this incident before David, when he wrote, The words of his mouth were smoother than butter, but war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet were they drawn swords. Psalm 55:21. How unspeakably dreadful was this. Here was a man with murder in his heart, deliberately plotting the death of a fellow creature, yet at that very moment talking about fighting the Lord's battles. Oh, how often is the vilest hypocrisy cloaked with spiritual language. How easy it is to be deceived by fair words. How apt would be the bystanders who heard this pious language of Saul to conclude that the king was a very godly man. Ah, my hearer, learn well this truth. It is actions which speak louder than words. And David said unto Saul, Who am I? And what is my life or my father's family in Israel that I should be son-in-law to the king? Verse 18 Some of the commentators have supposed that Saul promised David his daughter to wife at the time when he went forth to engage Goliath. But there is nothing in Scripture which directly supports this. What is recorded in chapter 17, verse 25, was the words of Israel and not of the king. They supposed he would do this and more. When Saul's proposal was made known to him, the modesty and humility of David was at once manifested. Some think that the reference made by David to his family had in view his descent from Ruth the Moabitess. It is blessed to behold the lowly spirit which was displayed by David on this occasion. No self-seeking time server was he. His heart was occupied in faithfully performing each duty assigned him, and he aspired not after earthly honors and fleshly advantages. Who am I? at once evidenced the mean estimate which he entertained of himself. Ah, that is the man whom the Lord uses and promotes. God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. James 4, 6 And what is my life? Breathes the same sentiment. The pitting of my life against the Philistine is no equivalent to receiving the king's daughter in marriage. Here again, we see the subject of these articles adumbrating the perfections of his Lord. Learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. Matthew 11.29 gives us what the modesty of David but imperfectly represented. Let writer and hearer earnestly seek grace to heed that word not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly. Romans 12.3 But it came to pass at the time when Mirab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, that she was given unto Adriel, 
the Maholathite to wife. Verse 19. What was the word of such a man worth? Be very slow, dear hearer, in resting upon the promises of a fallen creature. No doubt the perfidy of the king in so grossly affronting David was designed to anger him. Such shameful treatment was calculated to stir up to mutiny one who had the right to claim the fulfillment of Saul's agreement. And thus the king thought he could gain an advantage against him. It is striking and solemn to discover that the curse of God rested upon that marriage. For the five sons born by Mirab to the Meholathite, brought up by Michael, were delivered into the hands of the Gibeonites and hanged. 2 Samuel 21, 8 and 9 And Michael, Saul's daughter, loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. And Saul said, I will give him her, that she may be a snare to him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Verses 20 and 21 A new opportunity now presented itself unto the wicked king's purpose. Michael, another of his daughters, fell in love with David. He therefore proposed to give her to him for a wife instead of Mirab, hoping that he would now have opportunity of bringing about his death. But let us look beyond the devil-possessed monarch and behold and admire the wondrous ways of him who maketh all things work together for good to them that love him. Just as of old, the Lord turned the heart of the daughter of Pharaoh unto Moses, and thus foiled the evil designs of her father to destroy all the male children of the Hebrews, so he now drew out the affections of Michael unto David, and used her to thwart the murderous intentions of Saul. See chapter 19, verses 11 to 17. What a proof that all hearts are in God's hands. Conscious that his own word would have no weight with him, the king slyly employed his servants to gain David's confidence. They were commanded to commune with him secretly and to assure him the king hath delight in thee, and all his servants love thee. Now therefore be the king's son-in-law. Verse 22 When the secret restraints of God are withdrawn from them, the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Ecclesiastes 8.11 They will scruple at nothing, but employ any and every means to hand for accomplishing their evil designs. They will flatter and praise or criticize and condemn, advance or abase the object of their spleen as best serves their purpose. When David was informed of the king's intention, his reply again evidenced the lowliness of his heart. Seemeth it to you a light thing to be a king's son-in-law? seeing that I am a poor man and lightly esteemed by the king? Verse 23. From what follows, 
It seems evident that David was here pointing out his inability to bring to the king's daughter the dowry that might be expected. Compare Genesis twenty nine eighteen, thirty four twelve, Exodus twenty two sixteen and seventeen. Beautifully, has Matthew Henry in his comments on this verse pointed out, if David thus magnified the honor of being son-in-law to the king, how highly then should we think of it to be the sons, not in law, but in gospel, to the king of kings? Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. 1 John 3, 1 Who are we that we should be thus dignified, utterly unable as we were to bring any dowry to recommend us unto God? When his servants made known unto Saul David's reply, the real design of the king became apparent. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.